It's warm, isn't it? Should have ceiling fans or something. Turn in, uh, please, with your Bibles on the screen to, to Romans chapter 1 and to verse 13. Someone said to me this morning that, uh, are we not onto the bit of wrath yet? And I said, no, not yet. We will be there. Uh, but um, so much in Romans, as you're no doubt aware. Verse 13, I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, brethren, brothers and sisters, that I, may, I planned many times to come to you, but have been prevented from doing so until now, in order that I might have a harvest among you, just as I've had among the other Gentiles. I am bound both to Greeks and non-Greeks, both to the wise and to the foolish. This is why I'm so eager to preach the gospel also to you who are at Rome. I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes. First for the Jew, then for the Gentile. For in the gospel, a righteousness from God is revealed. A righteousness that is by faith from first to last. Just as it's written, the righteous will live by faith. Ah, apologies. The gospel, the gospel. It's such good news, the gospel. It's continually good and continually newsworthy. Continually good and continually newsworthy. For Paul, he was aware that as he was uh, visiting, traveling around the, uh, the Mediterranean world, he was so excited. And the news was unfolding of the gospel being, being delivered as he would visit synagogue by synagogue and sometimes get into to trouble and be thrown out. And then through his tent making and through gathering places where people would gather, he would declare the good news and the news would be newsworthy. People would repent and believe. Whether that was Jews or Gentiles, whether that was wise people or foolish, that Paul was making tracks all over the Mediterranean, wanting to go to uncharted places to preach the good news. And now we can go on tours. Or if you go to the Mediterranean in the summer, go and visit the places he spearheaded. But he wanted to go to Rome to the capital city, the city center of the empire of Rome. And he knew that there was already a church there, already a community of faith. And so you kind of think, well, why, why does he want to go? Does he just want to go because he kind of wants to just have a, a meet up with them and he's not met them? And, or maybe he thinks that the community there have... Um, haven't been founded properly and he's kind of got this slightly big-headed complex unless he establishes the church 
then it's not going to be established properly. And he thinks all those other apostles, ha, they don't know what they're doing. I don't think either of those reasons are right. He wants to go because he's so moved, so impassioned by the word, the gospel that has come to him. He wants to go and meet with the people in Rome and preach the gospel. In Rome, the center of the empire, that great metropolis full of, of culture, of, uh, of intrigue, of, of power, and bring good news. Compelled to. He says, it's always been my ambition to preach the gospel. This is at the end of Romans 15.20. He says, it's always been my ambition to preach the gospel where Christ was not known so that I would not be building on someone else's foundation. Or in, to the letter to the church in Corinth just across the way in, in Greece. When I preach the gospel, I cannot boast, for I'm compelled to preach. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. He's eager. That word eager, that word that is, is there, is used often of those who would be warriors going into battle. And they kind of be pumped up, and they'd have done that ho-ho kind of thing. You know, like the hacker equivalent. The, the uh, dictionaries describe this word eager, not just like, oh, I'm eager to go and get a bit of a cool drink. No, much more, much more intense. Root with intense passion of emotion, of desire. That word used of warriors going into battle. Blood pumping. This is his motive. Consumed with this intense desire to preach the gospel. And so he wants to come to Rome And he says, I, I'm looking forward to it. But you have to ask the question, why? If the gospel's already come, why in this trailblazer, why in this one who extends the barriers of the kingdom, in preaching in kind of fallow fields, like, you know, when it's been snowy, it's good to think of snow today, and, you, you know, the snow's fallen, and the first person to walk across the field has the liberty of making the tracks. It's beautiful. Paul is like that. He wants to go into the fresh fields, and establish the tracks. Why do you want to go back to the place the gospel has already come? Well, he wants to go because I think he realizes churches need the gospel as well as those who don't believe. You kind of think, well, that's obvious, Edward. We, we know we've believed in the gospel. But I think Paul is, is so much more onto this that we forget so easily. If you think about it, the letters that he writes, Rome, the letter of Romans is one of them, but all of his epistles, all of those letters, are written to Christians. He preaches to non-Christians. He, he proclaims the gospel in synagogues and marketplaces and all sorts of areas. But he writes gospel letters to churches to remind them, because we so easily forget, to Christians, that we enter into saving faith, trusting in Jesus, but it's not very long that Christians forget, or we, we sort of think, we, we think we've moved on from the basics, or those things that we first believed, either because someone teaches a new thing and it seems more attractive, or, or we kind of... We start to dilute that which we first believed with the things of other beliefs. 
Seems to be the track record, actually, of the Old Testament. That, that God's people made those profound, powerful, eager commitments to the covenant that God made with them. And they said, we will serve you wholeheartedly. And it's only a matter of years, if not months, sometimes days. If you read Exodus 32, 33. Or the story of the kings, the story of judges, the story through First and Second Samuel of how eager God's people are and how quickly they forget. Paul says, I must come. I'm eager to come to preach the gospel. In Rome, as we'll discover later on, It had so much to do with the divide between those who'd come from a Jewish heritage and those who'd come from a non-Jewish heritage. How do you get on together when Jesus has lumped us into one family? Occasionally, I I saw my cousins this week. I was at a kind of family wedding. And um, I was sitting on this table, as you do at weddings, and I was catching up with my cousins. It was great. And I don't know if you find at weddings, sometimes you often sit on the table with the mad person. No? <laughs> You're not sat with me, have you? Uh, there was this one lady I was talking to my cousin. She kept interrupting. And she kept like, oh, it was just a nightmare. She was a bit bonkers. I hope she doesn't listen to this. Anyway. Why was I telling you that? Yeah, I've remembered now. And on my table was uh, my cousin Duncan. Duncan is the son of my step-aunt. My uncle's first wife died and they remarried. Duncan is the child of... Family relations are all confusing. My uncle married Gabriel, second marriage. Two sons, he had three girls. And I remember when we were thinking back to the good old days, 25 years ago when when that happened and it was amazing how at family gatherings it was really weird because they hadn't grown up with us they were different my two cousins Duncan and Andrew and it was all sort of weird because they'd been lumped in with us and we had to work out how it went and it was just like a little snapshot for me of as I was remembering it of of what it must be like when God blends, when God through Christ brings people, still does, into the family of God. There's always that adjustment. How do we now get on? Paul knew he had to preach the gospel to the church and to the unbelievers. I love this uh, quote by Mark Twain, very wise man. He said, uh, the church can communicate so much through its unity and its disunity. Mark Twain used to say that he, had, he put a dog and a cat in a cage together as an experiment to see if they could get along. They did. And so he thought, I will extend the experiment. So he put a bird and a pig and a goat in a cage together. And they too got along fine after a few adjustments. Then he put in a Baptist, a Presbyterian, and a Catholic. Soon there was not a living thing left. We smile. But so often this is repeated. 
Churches fracture and separate. People fall out, take up sides, entrench themselves, fling mud and rocks and worse at each other. Or separate and form new things because not of good planting reasons, but of I don't like you reasons. Paul wants to preach the gospel to the church, to the unbeliever. Maybe too because many come to church and they need saving. You know, people are curious. People are curious. Just this morning, as we were worshipping at the school and, and Phil was preaching and the music was going, I, I was sort of standing, I could see, I was watching the kids doing all their business with tambourines and the doors were open and I could see them shooting out and the mums rushing after them to catch them. But beyond them, I saw all the people coming to the gym at the school and they just paused and looked in the door. What's going on in there? But more than that, people come into church, maybe you tonight, and you need saving. 116 says, the, God, the gospel is the power of God for salvation. It is real. That we can't get saved without the gospel. Our only hope in the world for salvation is Jesus. From time to time, people, I don't know if they say this to Phil, but from time to time, people say to me, you know, they've been Christians a long time, and they kind of say, well, there's not many visitors at the moment. Why, why do you keep banging on about, you know, this turn and believe, an opportunity to turn to Jesus? You know, don't, don't we need to hear something else? And I kind of, in one sense, understand what they're saying, but actually, we forget so easily that we make assumptions about one another, that well, everyone here is fine. The true, honest truth is I know kind of my heart before God. Of do I trust? And I have no idea about you, really. You look nice. A few of you are smiling. A few of you are nodding off because it's hot. But over the course of the months and the weeks, we get to know, and you do the right things, and you say the right things, and you kind of give all the signs that you probably do believe. Presence of Jesus. But not always sure. Not always certain. Not because you're doing something bad. But actually only you know your heart. We need to keep on preaching Jesus. We need to keep on offering within our church context as well as to those who are outside that Jesus is the way of salvation. Jesus is the power of God for salvation. Jesus is the solution to all that is broken and wretched in our world, in our life, in me, in you. And you know what people do believe? In India, sometimes... Uh, those that aren't of faith have some Christian, non-Christian friends and they say, why do you go to India? They've got plenty of gods. Why do you take yours? And for them, as atheists, it's an honest question. But for me, I, I know Jesus. And I know he's the only one who changes people. 
Too often in those years that I've had the privilege of going just to that place, of seeing people who have worshipped and worshipped and being sincere in their faith, but stuck without peace and forgiveness and lost. And I see again and again the gospel is the power of God for salvation. Here and there, everywhere. We forget, don't we? Here are some words of a new Christian. The testimony of a Lebanese woman. In high school, I was a devout Muslim. A classmate was a born-again believer, and we started discussing religion. I wanted to convince her to become a Muslim. At first, we discussed the Quran. Then she started to share the gospel with me. I decided to read the Bible to find a mistake in it. I was impressed by some of the words of Jesus, but I rejected it. After two years, I started to study the Bible again. I went through a hard struggle. Eventually, I decided to challenge Jesus. I told him, if you are there, then will you enter my heart? And he did. I wanted to grow in the Lord, and I tried to come to church, but my family wouldn't agree with it. They asked me to quit Christ or quit the family relationship. This was very hard for me, but I did have to make the decision to leave my family. Of course, Jesus has changed me. I did not believe in him at all. I thought it was blasphemy to call him Lord, but when I, was, I challenged him to enter my heart, and he changed me, I know he is alive in me. He has proven that his words are true, that he is the one and only true God. The gospel It's the power of God for salvation. I don't know if you saw it. um, This came from a news report in the States that a man called Patrick Green, a longtime atheist activist, announced publicly he'd converted to Jesus. His story goes like this. Two months ago, he threatened to sue a Texas county for allowing a nativity scene on public property. Can you imagine that? How dare they hold a Christian act of worship on public state property? He threatened to sue them. But he's announced that he's not only converting to Christianity, but also plans to become a pastor. Great stuff. An Air Force veteran from San Antonio who has a history of activism threatened in February to file a lawsuit against um, the the county court if it didn't remove the nativity scene in front of the courthouse. But he was forced to drop the lawsuit after doctors told him that he developed eye cataracts and was in danger of losing his sight. Shortly after, with his his failing vision, It forced him to quit his job as a taxi driver, and he was left with the challenge of supporting himself and his wife of 33 years. That's when Jessica Cry, a Christian woman who read about Green's troubles in the paper, went to the members of her church and asked if they'd be willing to donate to help Green. They ended up raising $400 in donations, which left him, quote, flabbergasted that Christians would help atheists. He says, it was the compassion that they showed me that compelled me to start rethinking my religious beliefs. He rethought his views on evolution and animals. He said, there's one lingering thought in the back of my head my entire life. 
And it's one thought that I've never been able to reconcile, and that is the vast difference between all the animals and us. He added, I kind of realized that the questions I was asking you just had to accept on faith without doubting every period and every comma. Amazing. A man committed in his opposition to Jesus, rescued by God. The gospel is the power of God for salvation. It's powerful. It's transforming. You're all looking deeply convinced by this. I know you know it. And part of why we preach this is that we are being sent out in a moment to go back into a world where there is deep hostility to this gospel, deep skepticism, rejection, denial, and saying, you foolish Christians, how dare you come to us and say that there is good news? And it whittles away at our understanding and our belief and our conviction that the gospel is powerful. Here's Stacy. She just got back from training. You're going off to somewhere in the world that's in the news that people fear. Why are you doing that? Because you've got a death wish? No. Actually, she's got a life wish to bring life to others. The gospel is the power of God for salvation. Philip preaches and speaks at Alpha over 10 weeks and in our prayer times in the week, over the course of the 10 weeks, a deepening frustration and they're like, why will they not believe this? Why can't presented with the good news? Are people so skeptical? And yet we contend in prayer and continue crying out, proclaiming, because we know without Jesus, people are lost. You know, we make the grave mistake if we presume that everyone in our church is in the kingdom. Jesus told parables on it, the wheat and the weeds, sheep and the goats. A survey in 2011 asked those who classed themselves as Christians what they actually believed. You know, in the census, something like 70% of our nation said they're Christians. And some people probed a bit further and, and found that just under half of that proportion actually believed in things like Jesus died for their sins and rose again. You know, people come and sit in church for years. People are around us and go through the motions of believing and of being and belonging and doing and you know, maybe outwardly all the same, but inwardly no change of heart. That's why we keep preaching. That's why I think Paul went to Rome to preach the gospel. We forget. We forget how good the good news is. You've probably heard this illustration. I won't repeat it. You've heard of that illustration of, of the lifeboat station? Yeah? Some people looking perplexed. It's essentially, there's a lifeboat station. A few people gather and the shipwrecks and people die and let's do something about it. So they start to rescue and they bring in the wet and bedraggled. Remember that one? And then after a course of time, those who've joined them and been rescued think this is great and they think we've got this little hut. It's too, I'm telling the story now. Uh, it's, it's, too, um, it's too ramshackle, let's do it up. And they do it up and then they begin to think, well... These dirty, sandy, muddy, shipwrecked people who are all like on death's door, they mess the place up, don't they? So let's build an outhouse. 
So they can be in there and be kind of made nice before they come into the nicely upholstered and decorated place. And eventually the committee passes a rule to say, well, hang on a minute, we like our club. We've got lots of people here, we have a great time. And it's really inconvenient when the flare goes and we have to go and rescue people. What's all that about? And the story ends by saying, well, one group of people just move out and set up a new lifeboat station to rescue the lost souls at sea. You can look it up on the internet, it's on YouTube. It's a good story. And essentially it's a parable that says, brothers and sisters, we forget. Oh, so easily we remember the gospel of grace that brings us in. But we become comfortable. And we like the life that he's given us. And we like it oh so nice. And we do. We really do. We get older and we get less radical and we just think we haven't got the effort to change things like we thought we had when we were 18. And life moves on and we think it's, well, we'll just be nice. And forget, we so easily forget that the gospel compels us to the lost. What's it called in, in Matthew 28, 19, 20? The Great Commission. Great because it's good. Great because it's big. Great because it's wonderful. But we forget. What's God been doing in the Western church in 30 years? He's been reminding us of the things of the Spirit which engages with the transforming power and the gifts of the Spirit to say it's not just words and come and be nice and sit in your middle class clothes in a nice, kind of, well, I suppose old churches used to be uncomfortable in pews, but you get what I said, join the club. It's part of being British. Thank the Lord that he's rescued us from that and reminded us of what we're about to become uncomfortable and out of our comfort zone and go out to reach the lost. Emil Brunner said, at every period in history of the church, the greatest sin of the church and the one that causes the greatest distress is that she withholds the gospel from the world and herself. We misplace the key to the kingdom. In my old church, I think I've told you this before, it caused great angst. I moved a cupboard at the back of the church once that had the hymn books in. And it had a little plaque on the corner that said, donated by such and such, one of the families of the church. And my goodness, the hoopla, because I moved a cupboard. I thank the Lord that this church isn't like that. Well, not on that kind of outer level. You know, when we moved to the school, and we still hear it, it's not the same, is it, as in the church? Well, no, it's not. But why did we go? Why did we go? We hear at the moment, oh, the setup grew, it's hot and sunny, no, no one comes, and it's a real pain to move the stuff. Yeah, it is. 
be easier, wouldn't it? If it was about our comfort. Lest we forget, the gospel is the power of God. Salvation. And the gospel reminds us of what we're like. We can go and sit outside with a cool drink soon. Final point. The gospel reminds us, says Paul, and Romans focuses it on so much. There's no getting away with it, he says. The gospel declares who we are. We're both wicked and beloved. If we side with one or the other, we distort the gospel. The gospel, you see, is God's both yes to us and his no to us. He says really clearly, and we'll see this developing in chapter 1 and chapter 2 and into chapter 3 particularly. That the gospel says, and we must hear this, that we are utterly unrighteous. And without the God, why do we need the gospel? Because without the gospel, we are under God's wrath and under his judgment and in the place that is fearful. Because we remain in our sin, we remain in our transgression, we remain in our rebellion. Or if we persist in those attitudes, we stand against God, against Christ, against his kingdom. And the gospel lays out for us, who are we? There's a no to the gospel. That the way that the world is and the way that we used to be, if, you have, if you've chosen Jesus, was a definite no. This is not the way that leads to life. This is the way of death. This is the way of destruction, of alienation, of hostility, of fractured relationships. How do we know that? Because God has revealed to it us in Jesus Christ. And says there's a new way because the old way doesn't work. Romans 3, all, all people have sinned, fallen short of the glory of God. Every one of us. The gospel, no. But there's also the gospel, yes. That even while we're in the place of wrath, God shows his great love for us. That while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You know, if we don't understand how bad we are without God, we'll never understand the amazing truth of how much God loves us. Most people don't get it. Most people think, well, I'm not that bad really, am I? And because we're nice and we like to be liked, we don't really say, yeah, you're awful. When was the last time you said, actually, you're, you're awful? I'm not suggesting we do that. But actually, we need to carry that within our heart because we know it true to, from ourselves. We know this would be what we, would, we were before Christ. Because that compels us and urges us and motivates us and inspires us like Paul. Unless people hear, how will they believe? 
You see, the gospel exposes sin. It says, don't be deluded about your own goodness, that you are bankrupt, dead in sin. No amount of effort on your part can rescue you. That lovely hymn, you alone can rescue, you alone can save. It is true. And the gospel says a yes to us. An accepting and a forgiving and an affirming and an embracing yes. You are welcome to come to Jesus. This yes and no has so much ramification. Paul will go on to it when he starts to talk to them about how do you live when there's temples and food sacrificed to idols? Should you all kind of follow one law and regulation for the sake of some and not the others? What about the thing of the vegetarians amongst us? Pete and Kate. The gospel speaks of that because some people, you know, what would you do if you invited, just pick on Pete and Kate, it's their wedding time, invited them and, and say, here's a great feast of What do you mean you don't eat meat? I've cooked this great barbecue for you. I thought you were Christians. You can eat anything now, can't you? How does that get resolved? Who has higher status? Who has position? Paul comes to Rome. He says, I'm coming to preach the gospel because when we fix our eyes on Jesus... When we understand and remember what the gospel is about. All of those ethical, all those pastoral, all those issues that we wrestle with in our own context and circumstance. Should you smoke? Should you drink as a Christian? What about having the, lots of coffee and caffeine and you're addicted to it? What about sexual ethics? What about what we do with our money? It all stems finds its resolution in Christ. Not that these are always easy. But we come to Jesus personally and again and again lest we forget what it means to belong. What it means to be part of a kingdom that is unlike the world has ever known. And this is our calling. This is our inheritance. This is our privilege as Christians. Amen? Do we stand together? Come on, band.